0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the InDesigner Podcast. I'm Michael Murphy, and this is episode four, the second part of our Get Out of Photoshop free lesson. If you're new to this podcast, let me quickly restate its mission to provide information, instruction, and insight to InDesign users. As a design veteran who started out doing mechanical paste-up on the drafting table and has moved from PageMaker through Quark Express to InDesign, I've spent nearly 20 years working out how to bend these programs to my will. The most cooperative one by leaps and bounds has been InDesign, particularly CS2, which is what I concentrate on in this podcast. In last week's episode, part one of my get-out-of-Photoshop-free two-parter, I discussed ways to avoid using Photoshop wherever possible. Specifically, I covered taking advantage of transparency, both in your native Photoshop and Illustrator files, then combining it with InDesign's transparency capabilities. I also discussed feathering InDesign objects and using object layer options. If you missed the last episode, you can download it from www.theindesigner.com or the iTunes Music Store. Let's get started with Part 2 and explore a couple of other InDesign features that'll help keep you out of Photoshop, starting with Drop Shadows. If, like me, you've been around long enough to remember the dawn of Mac-based design, page layout, and image editing, or if you're just a principled designer with strong opinions, you probably have some prejudice against Drop Shadows. Before the Mac, when it required an airbrusher or a skilled printer to create shadows, they were used only when a project absolutely demanded them, and its budget and schedule could accommodate them. With Photoshop, specifically later versions that included automated drop shadow functionality, drop shadows spread like a plague across print and web design. They were just everywhere, and usually for no reason other than that they were easy to do. To make matters worse, drop shadows were usually just one of a number of needless embellishments applied to the same object, along with beveled edges, 3D effects, and textures. As with most things, a lot of people fail to realize that just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. That's why they call them options. You have the option to use it or not. So began the drop shadow backlash. A lot of people refused to ever use them, considering them a crutch when better design solutions elude the designer, and a lot of books and magazines cautioned designers to use them sparingly. There's some truth on all sides of these arguments, but the fact is that drop shadows are a very useful tool, and used appropriately and with a critical eye, they can be a subtle yet powerful addition to your designs, especially where type and images coexist one over the other. InDesign allows you to add drop shadows to shapes, strokes, type, and placed images and objects. All of this functionality is available in Photoshop, but think about it this way. If what you want the shadow on isn't part of a larger Photoshop image, but one part of your page layout, you should be making your decisions about how that shadow looks within the context of your layout, not in a separate Photoshop document. This way you see how the drop shadow interacts with the other elements on your page. If you ever tried to have a drop shadow in Express that was on anything other than the white background of the page, or worse, over backgrounds of two different colors... You could probably tell horror stories of convoluted workarounds you had to try to get the look you wanted and how cumbersome making any changes would be. With InDesign, a convincing and subtle drop shadow is as easy as selecting drop shadow from the object menu or hitting command option M to bring up the drop shadow dialog box. Well, almost as easy. The first thing you want to do is not use InDesign's defaults if you want to create a subtle drop shadow. Except for the Multiply blend mode, which is the right way to go 99% of the time, you really need to play with the Opacity, Offset, and Blur values, and choose an appropriate color for the drop shadow. If you're working in CMYK, and your drop shadow falls over other colors, be sure to include some percentage of those colors in the swatch you select for the drop shadow color. I like to use a four-color black that's usually made up of 60% cyan, 60% magenta, 40% yellow, and 100% black. It creates a nice rich black as opposed to laying a dull flat gray over an existing color. And remember to take into account what you see in the natural world when making drop shadow decisions. Let's say you're putting a drop shadow behind a silhouetted image of a baseball. As a sphere, a baseball would be farther away from the object it's casting a shadow on because of its depth, and that shadow would be softer around the edges and not terribly dark under normal circumstances. If your object was supposed to be a Polaroid photograph then it would have a smaller, darker drop shadow closer to the object itself and with a harder edge to it because it's a flat object. If you wanted to make the Polaroid appear to be floating high above the page, then you would significantly offset the shadow, lighten it, and blur the edges a lot. Mimicking how shadows appear in the real world, even when they're drop shadows, not cast shadows, helps you out because, unconsciously, people know when something looks right or wrong to them based on their observations of the world. They won't be able to tell you exactly what's wrong, but they'll know on some level that something is. New to CS2 are the spread and noise options in the drop shadow dialog. These are carryovers from the drop shadow settings in Photoshop, and like I mentioned last week when discussing feathering, are a big improvement, especially the noise setting, which adds some graininess to the appearance and edges of the shadow, creating a more natural-looking result. The spread option I find less useful because it really bulks up the look of the shadow. I find it best for subtle use around type, where you want to create an accent halo around text to make it stand out better from a complex background. If you set your offsets to zero, your drop shadow will essentially occupy the same space as your object, in this case type, and would be visible only by the amount of blur and spread that you put on it. This is a technique I use a lot in my magazine layouts and cover designs, where large type for headlines runs over background images with varying levels of lightness and darkness. And I used to have to do all of it in Photoshop, but not anymore. Alright, I think I've covered drop shadows to death. Let's move on. If I was covering this topic before a room full of people, I'd ask to see a show of hands for the following question. Who actually likes making clipping paths in Photoshop? If someone were to raise their hand, I might suggest they seek professional help. When it's your absolute best, and most likely your only means, of achieving a specific result, then a clipping path is the way to go. But those occasions, I find, are becoming more and more rare. One of the biggest drawbacks of clipping paths is that they're hard-edged, postscript paths. Even the best executed and most complex paths are, at best, high-tech cutouts. And cutouts look fake. If I were to add up all the clipping paths I've made in my career and try to figure out how many of them I wouldn't have needed to make if InDesign had been around, I'd probably want to throw myself out a window for all the wasted effort. Easily 90-95% to of them would have been unnecessary, and I would much rather have spent that time on my design than on this mechanical task. InDesign's transparency support and text wrap options can help you virtually eliminate the need for clipping paths. Let's talk about silhouetted images specifically. There are a lot of ways in Photoshop to silhouette objects that are easier and look more natural than clipping paths. But back in the day, without that path, you couldn't get that silhouetted image into your page layout. That was probably the number one reason for creating clipping paths. It was the only way to get an irregularly shaped object into a page layout. The second reason was usually to allow for text to wrap around an irregularly shaped object. Well, you don't need clipping paths for that anymore. Let's say you've got an image, a head-to-toe silhouette of a person standing, that you want to put in your page layout. If that silhouetted person is on a layer in Photoshop with a transparent background, you can place that image on anything in your InDesign layout. A plain white background, within a tinted sidebar, over another image, etc. And the transparency will allow them to remain silhouetted. By using the text wrap options, you can use the shape of the silhouetted person to automatically wrap text around the edges of the image. But what if your silhouetted person isn't on a layer with a transparent background? Let's say you've been given a silhouetted image to use, but it's flattened, and the person appears within a white rectangle, the shape of all Photoshop files. Well, you won't be able to drop the person's image over a colored background, or on top of another image, without having the white rectangle be there. But if you're just putting that... On a white page and need to be able to wrap text around it, you can still do that. First, make sure the image is behind the text you want to wrap around it so that the white background of the image doesn't cover up the text. Quark Express would only allow text wraps for objects that were above other objects, so this would never work in that application without a clipping path. But in InDesign, objects can have any foreground-background relationship with other objects and still have the text wrap functionality. So, with the image still selected, open the Text Wrap palette and select the Wrap Around Object option. It's the third icon from the left. Then, from the Contour Options pull-down menu, choose Detect Edges. InDesign will determine where the white pixels end and your actual image begins to build a text wrap path of its own. Just select an offset value and you're good to go. Of course, if you have to have the person appear against a color other than white, you can get him or her on a layer with a transparent background using any number of methods in Photoshop that are easier and produce more natural results than clipping paths. The last thing I want to cover is a transparency-related InDesign cheat that can save you yet another trip to Photoshop. It's what I call poor man's lighting effects. It's a technique I came up with and have used successfully a couple of times to add depth to an image I've placed in a layout. In my case, it was a layered Photoshop image I created for the opening spread of a magazine feature. The image had a customized version of a Monopoly board, with the edge of the game board and some of the property cards scattered across it. The board and the cards were above what was supposed to look like a green felt tabletop. Everything was on its own layer, and some were vector smart objects. The only thing it was missing was some depth, some mood lighting, for lack of a better word. Unfortunately, lighting effects in Photoshop are layer-specific, so I'd have to rasterize my smart objects and flatten the image to apply lighting effects to the whole thing in Photoshop. And that destroys all of my flexibility to make changes later, if necessary. So that wasn't an option. But the image still needed some depth, a variation in lighting across the whole thing, to push it to the background more, create a realistic feel, and allow my headline and other type to pop out more. What I did was place the image in InDesign the way it was. Then I drew a rectangle over the whole image and filled that rectangle with a radial gradient that went from white at the center to my rich four-color black at the edges. I adjusted the range of the gradient so that there was more white and midtone area than pure darks, and then used the transparency palette to give it a blend mode of multiply and adjust its opacity. The result was that all of the white disappeared, which is how the multiply mode behaves, and all of the midtones and darks got added to the image I'd placed it over. The created a kind of soft overhead light feel to the whole image, just the effect I was looking for. My Photoshop file was still layered and flexible for future changes, and I could tweak my gradient and opacity settings in InDesign as much as I liked to get the look that was perfect. Over both of these, I placed my headline and other type, which really jumped off the page nicely, given the depth I'd been able to add to the background by covering it with the transparent gradient. Now... Just to stop and say for a moment what uh, this really, th- the big implication of this is, I was able to go in, like I usually do, and look at my design and say, oh, I'd rather do this, I'd like to change this, I'd maybe make this adjustment. But if I had done all of this flattening and lighting effects in Photoshop, I'd really be reluctant to do that. Then I'd get my printed piece and I'd go, oh yeah, that was the day I was too busy to go back into Photoshop and make those changes. I don't want to find myself looking at my work that way. But by building in this level of flexibility and coming up with, with this method of preserving my options in Photoshop and then enhancing it in InDesign with a little trick uh, using transparency, I was able to go back in, get everything just the way I wanted it, reimport the image the lighting effect fake effect that i had put in was already there and i'm very pleased with the result it's a fast and easy trick i've used it a couple of times with great success and you can do it with other colors other than simple black and white i could have added some yellow to the to the white and a lot more red to the dark area to go for more of a filter effect and playing around with these variations in indesign is a lot faster than doing it in photoshop so, there you have it, the conclusion of my Get Out of Photoshop free series. I hope it was helpful, and I welcome any feedback or questions you have. If anyone listening has their own Photoshop-style techniques they use in InDesign, please post them on the website at www.theindesigner.com or send them to me in an email at info at Next week, I have to say I have no idea what topic I'll be covering. The holidays are right around the corner, and from now through February is my busiest time of year, so I haven't planned that far ahead yet. But there will be a fifth episode next week, so stay tuned. This is Michael Murphy for the InDesigner Podcast. Thanks for listening.